Well, as many of you have no doubt recognized, we are in an election year. For those of you here who have not yet realized that, I want to know what you're doing. (laughs) Because there can be no doubt that um, with primary voting coming up in February and then the general election coming up in November, we're being inundated every moment of every day with messages. And it's not just messages about who we should vote for. It's about who we shouldn't vote for. And the reality is that politics is ugly business. And the efforts to get elected do not do our hearts much good. And lest we think that this is some new phenomenon exacerbated by social media, the reality is that the ugliness of politics in this nation preceded the forming of this nation. In fact, it was probably never uglier than when this nation was being formed. It is the nature of politics to be divisive. In order for candidate X to be elected, candidate Y must lose. And what that means is that candidate X is going to tell you why candidate Y is so bad. The things that they're going to take from you if they win. Candidate X is going to tell you the things they're going to give you if they prevail. Candidate Y may well be the devil incarnate for as long as we know if we were to look at the campaign ads. It really depends on who's putting forth the ad, who is for candidate X, who is for candidate Y. But the reality is what they seem to be really good at, those who are good at operating the political machine, is they are wonderful at half-truths, at obfuscation, at creating pictures that probably don't have much to do with reality. And if all you did was watch political TV... I'm confident that you would come away wondering when the Civil War was about to begin. And you'd probably be under the impression that those who are on the opposing side are so far below that they don't deserve dignity, that they don't deserve your love, that they're just not like you. That's the game that politics plays, division. We must, in order to conquer, we must first divide. And then once we've won the election, then we can come together, except for the fact that as soon as we win the election, we have to start preparing for the next election, which means any glimmer of hope that we had in unification goes away with the possibility of another election coming up. And so it's in that atmosphere that we all find ourselves in that that I was reading through Matthew earlier this week. And I saw some words in Matthew's gospel that just caused me to stop. Now, you might be thinking to yourselves, what is it that Jesus could have said that was so profound that caused our pastor to just stop in his tracks and be kept and held and captivated by what he read? Surely it must have been something deeply profound. And I assure you it was. But the reality is, for most people, you probably would have just glanced right through it and not really thought for a second because what stopped me in my tracks was a list of names. It was a list of the 12 apostles 
12 chosen from the disciples who'd been following Christ for a special task, set apart by Christ. And in the list of these names were a couple of names that had further qualifiers beyond just their name. There's Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Why did they stop me in my tracks? Well, here's what you need to understand. 2,000 years ago, Israel was occupied territory. The Roman Empire had taken over and controlled all facets of life in Jerusalem and in Israel, down to how they worshipped. Now, the Romans acquiesced because they thought it was in the best interest of keeping the peace to allow the people of Israel to continue to worship the way they worshipped in their temple. But the reality is Rome controlled everything, and if there was anything they wanted to stop, they could. And that's the general context. And in the midst of all of that, there was a small political faction that believed that worshiping Caesar, worshiping the emperor, was idol worship. That Israel needed to be completely free, existing without any occupier, free to worship as it worshiped, free to adhere to the Ten Commandments, God's law as given to Moses, and then played out. Many of these were of the Pharisaic persuasion, believing firmly in the law. And they were not beyond using force and violence to get their thoughts across. In fact, included in them was a subset of assassins who would occasionally find themselves in the midst of Roman celebrations, wielding a knife on an unsuspecting person just to get their point across. These were known as the zealots. And so if you were reading through this list, you would find that one of the 12 chosen was somebody who was identified with the party of the zealots, Simon. Now, Simon's name on its own might pique your interest, but when you see it alongside Matthew, the tax collector, that's where bells go off. Because Matthew, as a tax collector, is somebody who had decided to go into league with the Romans. A Jew himself, he decided that he would rather flourish and make a buck or two by being an agent of the occupying force. Extorting taxes from his own family, from his own people. The zealot wanting to fight for the freedom of the nation, the tax collector recognizing he can make money in the midst of occupation and oppression. These guys are at two very ends of the spectrum, and I suspect that if you put the two of them in the room, that a fight was going to break out. And frankly, my money's on the guy associated with the assassins as to how that's going to turn out. (laughs) So if you were Jesus... And you are establishing your church, a church that's going to need to go out to all the world, sharing the gospel message. Do you put together two guys who are sworn enemies, likely to kill each other if given a chance? I don't do that. But then again, nobody ever mistook me for the Prince of Peace. And that's who we have in Jesus. That was that beautiful 
prophecy from Isaiah 9 and 6 that the child who will be given to us, the world would be upon his shoulders. And amongst many labels that he would be given would be the label Prince of Peace. And so if one is the Prince of Peace, surely he can bring together two factions who have no business being anywhere near each other, who are violently opposed to each other. The Prince of Peace should be able to be a unifying force that can cause the lion to lie down with the lamb. Such is the power of Jesus, of his unification, of his ability to make two things that should never be able to come together work as one. It's in that way that Jesus brings us together. It's in that way that being unified in the blood of Christ causes us to be brother and sister. And in fact, John writing in his epistle, 1 John, makes it clear that the way Christians feel towards one another is what reveals whether or not we're actually Christians. He wrote, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. You see, it is our love for God that fuels our drive to love our neighbor as ourself, that gives us the ability to love our neighbor as ourself. And, and make no mistake, Christians, you are called whenever possible, if it is possible, according to Paul's words in Romans chapter 12, as far as it depends on you to live at peace with everyone. That's the call to you. But just as that call is made to you, I want you to understand that as Paul was writing those words with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he wrote the phrase, if it is possible. That's important for us to know because it is as equally possible for us to live at peace with everyone as it is for us to live a sinless life. You can't do it. Why can't you do it? Because Jesus tells us that there will always be those that hate him. And if they hate him, they're going to hate us because we are pursuing him and his righteousness. We get a little bit more insight into that when Jesus goes on because the introduction that I had Anne read to you, the identification of these 12 was to call them out for a mission. Jesus was sending them out. And what he said was, whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to their words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off of your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment than for that town. Jesus understood that the world would reject him. 
And yet we're called to live at peace. And so we need to understand that the Prince of Peace did not come to bring peace to the entire world. He came to bring peace between those who would accept him and God. And if we misconstrue that mission, we misunderstand the Messiah. And if we misunderstand the Messiah, we miss Jesus. And frankly, this is what has happened with many of our Jewish brothers and sisters. Faithful practicing Jews understand that the Prince of Peace is called to bring peace. But they think that the coming of the Messiah will usher in an era of peace where there will be no violence, there will be no war, there will be no strife on earth. They think that the purpose of the Messiah is to usher in peace on earth, not peace with the one who made the earth. And there's a huge difference, isn't there? If I have to choose peace with those on earth and peace with the one who created the earth, I'm going with the one who made the earth. That is the reason why Jesus came. And that is why Jesus says there will be those here on earth who will reject my message. And if you think the objective is to get everybody on earth to obey the message, you have failed to understand. It's peace with me that needs to happen. That doesn't happen if we accept the culturally acceptable picture of who Jesus is. This cuddly, warm guy that invites everybody to come and gather around him who is pouring out his love and asks nothing in return. He simply wants you to come and be forgiven. But that's not who Jesus is. Jesus is loving. Jesus is forgiving. But Jesus comes because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the only way to salvation. And so we can't accept the culturally acceptable picture of who Jesus is. We have to understand that these words Jesus spoke himself. Just a little bit further on in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus proclaimed, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. What Jesus is saying is that blood is thicker than water. But the shed blood of Jesus Christ is unbreakable. Your families will turn on you But you have an eternal family and the brothers and sisters of Christ Jesus. A family that will last forever. The world will reject you. God's heavenly kingdom will accept you. But a choice has to be made and a price will be paid. And so Jesus says, don't worry about having peace with everyone. Love everyone, yes, but don't worry because they're going to reject your message. Your unity comes in me. Your unity comes through me. Tomorrow, as we've talked about, is a federal holiday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And most of us, when we think about Martin Luther King Jr., we think about a great speech that he gave in Washington, D.C. in 1963. 
And in that speech, he used a rhetorical device of repeating a phrase again and again. I have a dream. Most of us will remember one of the phrases that followed that better than the others. He said, I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Sally sang about that. Now, I don't want to disappoint any of you, but I don't have enough faith in mankind to think that absent Christ, we can suppress the inherent racism and bigotry, the sinfulness, the natural condition of man's heart to expect to see that day anytime soon. But that's not new. Because in fact, if you look back in the Old Testament, you see that when Israel was in need of a new king, God told Samuel to go to Jesse because one of Jesse's sons was going to be the next king of Israel. And so Samuel goes and he sees in front of him one of Jesse's sons, and he looks at this guy, and he's tall, and he's good-looking, and he's strong. And Samuel says, this has got to be the guy. And God says, no, no, let me, let me set the record straight. And I love that Samuel captures this because it speaks to us the very same thing. Samuel has God saying, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The judge that truly matters is God above. It's no one here on earth. We need to worry about what God says, what God sees, because his judgment has eternal consequences for all of us. And God is the only one fit to judge the content of our character. He can look into our hearts and see if it is filled with the love for Jesus. If we have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, the condition of our heart is changed forever. All of this from a list of apostles. Because here's what I want you to understand. In listing out those 12 men, so significant was the role of zealot in the life of Simon that it was associated with his name, with who he was. And yet this man who had such deep-seated hatred for Rome and all that it stood for, for all of its agents, for all of the oppression, for all who supported Rome, yet... When his heart is inclined towards Christ, he puts that all aside. And there is Matthew, the tax collector, whose heart was so inclined towards money that he was willing to betray his own family, to work against his own kind, for his own profit, his own benefit, his own comfort. And yet, upon meeting Christ and having his heart pricked, He set that all aside. A zealot and a tax collector 
surrendering their identity to become one with Christ Jesus. Our day tomorrow is based upon a unification of people. Christ offers that in a way that can never be achieved in any other fashion. Christ offers unity that will withstand persecution, will withstand hatred, will cross any line that might otherwise divide, will wipe away any past that otherwise demonstrated a hatred or an evil against one another. The blood of Jesus Christ will wash that all away and provide a bond that can never be broken, not in this life and in the world to come. That's the lesson that Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector have shown for us. May we, as we look forward to the days to come, embrace that message, deny ourselves and put on the blood of Christ as well and follow Christ. Amen? Amen. Let us pray.